Hiya, pal. Got an idea. All right, mate, go on. I think we need to evolve the podcast. All right, what you got in mind? Well, why don't we just start recording all the chats we have when we're talking about leadership? Okay, what are we going to call it? Sense makers. Sense makers. Love it. And have we got a backer? Of course we have. Tsunami Sport. Quality. When are we starting? Now, get this end round and I'll put kettle on. Top man, I'll be round in five. Confidence and career success coach. She helps professionals overcome self-doubt to accelerate their careers and create a life they love. Angie is hired by companies to deliver confidence-related workshops or public speaking events on the topics of resilience, assertiveness, and imposter syndrome, all topics we've regularly encountered on this podcast. In this episode, we're going to focus on the concept of self-worth. So Angie, welcome to the show and tell our listeners a bit about your journey to become a confidence and career success coach. Okay, so thanks for having me. Um, so in terms of my journey, it's it kind of just kind of fell into place, really. I started off many moon ago, probably going even through my younger years, just kind of knowing that things weren't quite right or wasn't feeling particularly good. Um, <clears throat> probably hit a turning point around about the age of 19, which I'd probably confidently say was possibly the worst year of my life. So at the age 20, I started seeking professional help. Now, what I got into at age 20 was like therapy. Now, I'm not dissing therapy, but I was in and out of therapy. I'm quite open about my story, by the way. But I was in and out of therapy between the ages of 20 and probably early 30s, like 31, 32. So around about 12 years, not consistently, but dropping in and out of different therapists, whatever. But I just kind of found that although I, I was finding it a bit frustrating, because although I had this plethora of understanding around my story and who it was and how I was reacting, um, I just I was still reacting horribly in different situations, even though I understood so much about myself. So I kind of sealed out in terms of what I could learn from that. So I just kind of got to the point where I resigned that life's going to be a bit rubbish and every day is just going to be a bit of a firefight. And then I just randomly stumbled into a coach. And at the time, I'd never even heard of coaching. I just thought a coach was a football coach or a badminton coach or something. Um, long story short, I ended up enrolling with this guy. And within four months, I'd had more of a complete shift around how I felt about myself, how I was operating in the world, not having the horrible reactions that I was having before than I'd had in 12 years of therapy. So at that point, I was completely obsessed. Like I was sold about the, the impact that it can actually have. So um, I still intermittently work with him now, nearly 10 years later. Um, but I started realizing that actually the stuff that I was struggling with at the time loads and loads and loads of people were struggling with it you don't see it when you're in it but once you step out of it it's it's everywhere and it's rife so I started thinking well why can't I help people in the same way that I was helped basically so um, I trained to become a coach actually with the same guy he then coached me to become a coach and I set my own business up and that leads me to now and because I had a quite a big corporate background I do work with a lot of corporates um, but I also work with a lot of people in the workspace um, they don't have to be like a business that's hired me it's individuals that are like very highly professional work with me as well so I work with leaders um, c-suite people directors or senior managers as my one-to-ones in my leadership group um, but then I realized there's a lot of people that I could still help in a cheaper way so I have I run something called the boot camp as well and it's like an eight-week program for people that aren't leaders but a lot of the stuff that comes up is almost identical whether you're leadership or you're not these are psychographic issues that people as human beings battle with and it's an absolute game changer when you see it and 
and change it basically. And that brings me to where I am now. Thank you very much, Angie. What was it about coaching Angie that, that really lit up the light bulb, if you like? Mm. I think the main difference really is, um, and again, I, I please, if anybody's listened to this and they've ever had therapy, I'm not, I'm not being disrespectful towards my mum's a therapist and I had it for 12 years. It has a good place in the world. But to me, the fundamental difference was in therapy. It's all about going into your background and going into your story and the stuff that happened to you. And I often found that I'd leave a therapy session talking about incidents happened when I was 13 or 14 or something. And I'd just be reliving that trauma again. I'd be angry again. And it's almost like takes you back there. Whereas coaching is very different in the sense that where are you now? Where do you want to be? And what do we need to do to bridge that gap? So it's not about ignoring the past. It's about accepting the past, but recognizing as a result, you are who you are now. But what do we need to do to, do to fix it, to bridge that gap, to get, get you to be the person that you want to be? Rather, So it's more about um, doing and understanding and being a bit more brave rather than just analyzing and more, more analysis in terms of whatever has happened in your story kind of thing. So that to me is the difference. One's backwards, one's forwards. And the one that's forwards, the coaching sort of approach, I know that today you really want to talk to us around self-worth. What kind of impact did that have, that sort of empowering your metacognition of understanding where you are now, where you want to go and how you get there? How did that impact you and your self-worth? Sure. Um, and sorry, can you just rephrase the question, which mean, how did it impact me? I and mean, obviously the, the impact is that my self-worth blossomed as opposed to remain the same, but... I think the difference in terms of the approach, if that's kind of what you're asking, is it's less about just talking everything through. Obviously, when you're with a coach, you do talk. Obviously, you don't sit there in silence. Um, but it's understanding the behaviours in which you're taking and the way that you're understanding a situation is actually fueling the, the lack of self-worth. So... Um, if you're in a situation like just take it a very, very basic standard, this is like very, very high level, but even take the most basic of people pleasing. Now in therapy, you might end up talking around why you hate conflict and what, what your fears are around what's happened with conflict in the past or whatever. So people just end up kind of analyzing why you hate being in conflict. Whereas actually coaching would be more around your stories that you hear in your head around what conflict actually represents, what it actually means, what the analysis, like what the belief systems are that you have around conflict and how you can actually manage it. So, and not in an aggressive way as well. This isn't about teaching people to go out and be, you know, causing arguments with people, but not being then scared of it because every time you back away from something where maybe somebody's crossed your boundary, you've basically just um, disrespected yourself. And a lot of people finger point at the other person they shouldn't have done that to me how can they do that to me well if you're allowing somebody to do that to you you're 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 the one responsible for that and you're the one then eating up your own confidence and eating up your own uh self-respect and self-worth because you're allowing it so the message that the brain gets is i'm not good enough to stand up for myself or i'm not worthy of this or that person has higher needs or more importance than i do now if that happens once in your life it's probably not going to have a big deal on you but if that becomes a pattern of behavior then it starts eroding your confidence because you're forever living in this world that their needs, wants and desires are here and your needs, wants and desires are there. And you're always the inferior person. You're less worthy. You're less important. And once that becomes a narrative in your head, it then fuels extra behaviors that in, are in alignment with that story. So in coaching, what you'd first of first you do is identify what the story is. 
and then see what behaviors are coming off the back of that story. And then you start, first of all, changing the way you think about it. And secondly, change the way that you react to those situations. So when you can look back the next day, you know that if nothing more, you've respected yourself and you've managed a situation with integrity where you're respectful to the other person, but you're also respectful to yourself. Whereas if your people are crossing your boundaries, you're not respecting yourself. And that is just, it's reinforcing the lack of self-worth. You, you talked earlier, Angie, about these reactions and reacting badly. And obviously that then affects your self-worth. Can you give us some really good examples of the way you reacted and that how that impacted on you? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I just talked about conflict. So it wasn't, it isn't just conflict. I'm not, it makes it sound like all I do is deal with conflict, but it's not the case at all. Um, but let's just stick with that because it's already been mentioned. Um, but even the fear of somebody disapproving, maybe use that as opposed to it being conflict, even just the thought of getting any form of negative feedback or form of constructive criticism or somebody saying that isn't good enough or somebody saying that they don't like even something I wear that has nothing to do with anybody else. Anything that was receiving something where I was, I interpreted as I've received disapproval was completely flooring for me years ago and still is for many people which is why people are so reactive to things like saying the wrong thing sorry they interpret it as saying the wrong thing but maybe saying something in the meeting that isn't then well received from somebody else or going up on stage and doing public speaking and not getting everybody doing a standing ovation at the end and or maybe somebody kind of yawns in the audience they immediately go oh that that means that person thinks I'm boring so immediately it's the way that the brain works and the, the conclusions that you jump to so you call out those types of things to understand that actually, for example, if you see somebody yawning in an audience, like it could be a million reasons why they're yawning. It could be that they have um, been up all night with a newborn baby and they haven't had any sleep, or maybe they've been sick and they just haven't had any sleep, or maybe they found out the night before that they're one of their close family members are ill and therefore they weren't able to sleep. There's so many reasons why people might yawn, but people, because you've got the narrative of I'm not worthy, the interpretation from that individual becomes that's because they think I'm boring. And then that narrative starts going on a loop in the head. And that's where the anxiety is, is triggered. And then they're on stage, even under more pressure because there's more eyeballs on them and they're like crumbling on stage because of this constant need for external validation. So I actually made a post about this on LinkedIn today, but you can't be rejected or upset from something that you're not attached to. So rather than trying to say, oh, just ignore them, which might come up in counseling or therapy. I've certainly had a therapist say that to me, you know, like you and trying to instill that belief, you, you shake up the person's way of thinking and you make them start challenging their own way of thinking. It's like, why would I actually think that? And why would I actually believe that in the first instance? And then have different associations and different interpretations and different ways to react to it. So you become a bit more bulletproof in these different situations. So people pleasing is a massive one. If somebody, I don't know, um, asks you to do something and you're so scared of not getting their approval that you agree to do something that you don't want to do. What you've just said is what they think and want is more valuable than what I think and want. So that simple behavior, first of all, recognizing that I'm people pleasing right now. I'm responsible for that. And actually recognizing when you're doing the thing that is causing you more trauma and then affect and changing it by not doing the thing that's going to reinforce the more trauma and the, the more denting of the self-worth. So it's just recognizing that every day in our lives, we have these opportunities that are faced with those like golden nuggets that we have a choice. Do I do the thing that's good for my self-worth or do, do I do the thing that's going to damage my self-worth? But when you've done that for a, a week, a month, a year, for decades, 
over time you get to people in the 40s 50s 60s and they're like their their self-worth is just so minimal because they've rehearsed this for for so long whereas if you can nip it in the bud from a younger age whether that's a kid or somebody in the 20s or 30s or even any age it doesn't actually I mean obviously it helps if you catch it in the bud sooner but you can still help anybody at any age if they're willing to go there and be willing to see things in a different light isn't, and isn't it in a different way as well sorry yes sorry the evolutionary our brains wired up for to recognize the negatives though isn't it because of the whole fight or flight and it, it was a survival mechanism so is it is it something we've got to really change in ourselves and and what strategies you've talked a few of a few of the strategies there to do that for someone who is really suffering with negativity what's a real easy win for them to do in those circumstances so just going back to the point you made around it's in our dna effectively i would agree with you it is in our dna but we've we, it's become too heightened so it's useful to have parts of us that have the fight or flight because it helps us if we're walking through a jungle and we see a lion or it stops us from crossing the road without looking both ways because we're in these are the risks that we live in life so we need it as part of our body to keep us safe but it becomes hyperactive and then we start reacting in the same way to something like somebody saying i don't like your genes to um, somebody saying, I don't like what you said in that meeting in the way as if we're fighting for our survival, like we're walking through a jungle and a lion's you know, chasing us. So it's not that we're trying to take away this part of our bodies, like it keeps us safe. Like that's, it's your body's way of saying there's a risk in the outside world. You've got to be ready to protect yourself. But unfortunately, with the way that we've been conditioned to think, I believe in society, that triggering of that particular part of our brain has become way too heightened over things that aren't actually a, a genuine risk. They're just something that we've associated as a risk and that is actually no physical harm whatsoever other than the way that we think about it because we've got such a high attachment to something like approval or validation or whatever, you know, those types of things. So I agree with you, it's part of our brain, but we've, we're not utilising it in, in a way that's helpful for us. I think you made a, a really astute point there about the sort of societal demands and ideals and norms that are being created through you know whether you look at social media or you you look at the news and, and you look at what's happening in the world at the moment and if I'm listening to you correctly what you're talking about there is that what we desire and what we what we see as success as individuals has been extrapolated and magnified a million times to something that isn't necessarily right and and success in it for us as individuals and as a result of maybe not hitting those ideals and those desirable behaviors that society puts on us we're going to be then in a position where we give ourselves a critical narrative of our performance and we really start to be, be harsh upon ourselves i think my, my first question is probably have I, have I understood that correctly and then um, <clears throat> what impact does that have on those people around us i, I know from I had some, some reading of, of, of Kristin Neff's work on self-compassion. She talked about average being suddenly a word now that nobody wants to be. You know, if, if, if somebody talked about our podcast and said it was average, we'd, we'd, we'd step back a bit and say, hang on a minute, come on, we're trying really hard for this. And what, what's wrong with that word average and how has society created these demands that have suddenly made us all really question ourselves and create such a, a really strong negative narrative in our own heads? Mm. um so to answer your first question yeah your interpretation is is correct I, also, I think fundamentally the the problem that we have is that we're trained from a very very young age and it's fueled with the things like social media 
um, that we base everything on who we are based on what everybody else says about us and what everybody else thinks about us. So, you know, that's why people get so upset if they make a post and you only get two likes, whereas their friend is getting like 150 likes or more or whatever. So everything is based on this external stuff. So when you connect on the inside and you understand your own thoughts, you understand your own feelings, you understand your own values, which is a huge thing that, that can drive really self-worth um, behaviors, then it changes your outlook on the world. But as long as you're completely dependent on what other people say, think, do and react to you and blah, 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 as your measurement of who you are and if you're good enough, that's the danger that that's when you're down heading down a very slippery slope, basically. And it's it's encouraged all the time with social media, with the way that we mark things with, the you know, like promotion at work, like everything is always in this place of, you know, what everybody else thinks of us. I know people that do jobs they absolutely hate, but look amazing on paper but they've only done it because they thought that that would get them more status or more credit or more validation or, you know, more seen in a particular way by other people, you know, and they're miserable because of it. They might be minted, they might have a great job, but they're bloody miserable underneath it. So it's not necessarily um, encouraging. So what was your second question? What was the impact of, of that? Is, is that right? If, did I yeah. understand correctly? Yeah. Well, what, what's going to be the impact of that? If, if we take that and we, we're, we've got this ideal of, of, of what society wants and then we, we've given ourselves this narrative that we're not always matching up to it. You know, where's, where's the end point to that? How do we break that cycle? We break that cycle in, in, well, I can't speak for what everybody else does, but the way I help people with it is you break the cycle by teaching people about their own values. Who are they? So when I say to somebody, for example, if you remove your job from if I ask you who you are and you're not allowed to tell me your job title, you're not allowed to tell me you're um, like you're, you're a dad or you're a husband or you're a wife or you're a mum, then who are you? What's left? Like what's left after all the stuff that you do? Like who are you? Most people struggle with that. So once they have an understanding of that, which we do some deep diving on values and what genuine values actually mean to live by them, not just you know, lovely buzzwords, like being honest, actually, when I dig a little bit deeper, most people aren't honest when they think they are. So um, once they have a handle on that, then they can start adapting their behaviors in alignment with their own values, not values for the people, values for themselves. And the one key thing about values is, first and foremost, what you offer yourself, and then what are you offer other people secondary. Now, a lot of people challenge me on that and say, um, well, it feels really selfish. It's all about me. And what about other people? It, it, this isn't about disrespecting other people. But if you can show up in a really powerful way, other people benefit from it. So if you've got a friend who's just gone through a divorce or gone through something traumatic and they need, they need somebody to sit down and really let it all out with, and you can hold that space in a way that you're not uncomfortable if they need to go deep into emotions and they need to cry and you're not going to shame them or get awkward they're going to benefit more from that friend than the person that goes, come on, let's just go down the pub and drink ourselves silly and get smashed and never think about it. So it's actually the, you know, if you're, if you're showing up as a, a leader and you've got vulnerability and you're willing to be open and you're willing to be honest and you, you're completely transparent in what you're thinking and feeling and what you're doing and you do what you say and you mean what you say, people feel safer around you. Other people benefit from having the trust, higher, having an increased level of, um, awareness of who you are, high level of trust, a high level of connection. You can hold deeper, closer relationships with other people, regardless of whether it's a colleague, whether it's a partner, whether it's your children. You can get deeper with these things when 
you're able to go there. So other people benefit from you being that person, which is why it's so important that you understand that values are what we offer ourselves first and foremost, and then what we offer other people. We respect ourselves first and we respect the other person simultaneously. But if we're respecting the other person and disrespecting ourselves, you're going to do damage to your self-worth and your self-confidence. If you're respecting yourself and disrespecting other people, you're also going to do damage to your self-confidence because you've got this um, it might lead to things like entitlement or a belief that you're, you're um, better than other people just for stupid reasons, like because of something you earn or something, which is what that becomes a toxic thing. So when you actually have this complete balance of I'm important, you're important, you just have a very much more balanced person that's high confidence. Yeah. You, you, your values uh, explanations there just resonated with, with me with the words of Gandhi when he talks about words and actions are aligned, they're equal to your values. Mm. We've talked about quite a lot. And mm -hmm. my interest here is, Lewis and I are both uh, leaders in school and we've got unique opportunities to try and get these sort of messages across. What, what's a really good way in an organisation? It could be business, it could be a school, it could be a sports team. How could we really get across a values-driven approach to create that self-worth you're talking about? Um, I guess you're going to get different answers from different people here. For me, understanding what the values actually mean to live by them. So I know people that um, actually is really interesting. I'm working with a client at the moment. He's a director in this business. And they did a meeting, business meeting recently, where they were talking about company values. And they said, right, well, let's look at um, integrity and let's look at honesty. They're like, yeah, but we need to be more influential so other people can you know, be more swayed by what we say and we need to um, be more powerful. So we, we make sure that what we say we do and people do what we ask them to do and blah, blah, blah. That to me isn't actually a high level of honesty or integrity. Honesty is like so many situations that people aren't honest where they think they are. So if you're not sharing something that needs to be shared, it's still a form of dishonesty. You know, and honestly, often people think they're being honest when they say something that I would say is judgmental. So they might say, yeah, but I am being honest. I did tell her that she's fat or I am being honest. I did tell her she's crap at a job. Well, actually, that isn't really honest. That's judgmental. Honesty might be something closer to I'm genuinely worried about your health. You know, that might be a close level to honesty or, you know, um, I'm worried about the, you know, the work that I've seen recently isn't of the standard that you previously used to do. Do we need to have a conversation about it? As opposed to saying this person now isn't um, engaged in the job and the, the work is rubbish or something. That's judgment. So when people can communicate in a high level of honesty, you can only really say anything that's honest when it's coming from your interpretation of what you see. But coming from a place of how it impacts on you as opposed to you're this and you're that, that's judgment. So I help people communicate better. And that's what brings the impact. It isn't just about, you know, cracking whips and forcing people to do something because you're the leader. It's about actually communicating a way that people connect with and inspiring them to want to take action themselves. So we're talking a lot there about value relationships, about valuing your following your own values as a person and understanding what they are and trying to avoid, if I've understood rightly, that sort of labelling of, of giving people something that they've done wrong rather than actually saying how maybe it's affected you, which will allow them to better understand how it's affected your progress or your self-worth. And I'm just wondering how we start to bring this in with, with children of a younger age. I read a, a frightening statistic the other day that as young as grade three students, 
um, which are year four in the British system, they're in a position where grade three students are questioning or their levels of self-worth start to reduce at around that age. Um, and, you know, to put that into context, that's at, at eight years old. So we have children as young as eight whose self-worth is starting to be affected. Um, what can we do to allow children of that young age to understand the power of positive relationships, of not labelling people around them, of understanding their values and trying to, to live to them? Mm. It's a difficult question because I don't think it would just be like, just do this and then everything is you know, fixed and healed. For me, um, that particular answer would, would take a bigger approach. I think they need to change the approach in the schooling system to, to change it away from the, the way that it does work and the way that we are compared to each other and the way that the kids are, you know, graded in particular ways and this is good enough, that isn't good enough and parents need to be aware of it as well. And the difficulty is because parents are now bringing, any parent has brought a child into the world, they went through the same education system and their parents did and their parents did. So even if the child is given that in the schooling system, they're going to go home and they're still going to be faced with the same thing. Um, one of the, you know, I think that schooling needs to actually be more aware of the things that children offer as skills rather than your bog standard, you need to learn this and you need to learn that. So for example, when I was at school, I was a right old chatterbox and I went to school and my best mate, who I'm still best mates with, we were just by coincidence in the same class for everything, in the same set for everything. We always used to sit next to each other and my school reports, I've actually made videos about this, but my school reports were identical along the lines of Angie's a pleasure having class or Angie works hard in class, but she spends far too much time talking to Matty and she spends far too much time talking to Matty. Now, Matt and I are still best mates and we still talk like to the trees, come, like to the cows come home, whatever. But the point is, is that nobody ever said to me, Angie's a natural at talking. She maybe needs to consider <laughs> in doing something where she's talking. And like, here I am. And I basically talk for a living. I'm forever <laughs> my clients. I'm forever talking on stage. I'm always doing running workshops. I'm making videos where I'm talking. I'm being asked to do an interview because I'm talking. Nobody ever said that to me. I was just reprimanded for it. So I left school thinking that being able to talk in quite a dare I say it myself, fairly articulate way was actually a bad thing. And I was basically shamed for it and told to be like quieter and not to be so disruptive. And I was told off for this as opposed to being encouraged for it. But every said, well, what do you want to be? And all the jobs at school, it's be a doctor, be a dentist, all these recognized jobs. Actually, when you go out into the world, there's loads of jobs out there that you're not even aware of. I didn't know there was, you know, unsurprisingly, when I went into the corporate space initially, I had a job as an account manager where my job was to go on site and build relationships with people because I'm good at talking. So everything that I do has come down to my verbal ability. I'm not naturally good at writing. I'm dyslexic. I'm, you know, I can write and I can write good articles, but it's slower for me. It's painful. I get frustrated with it. Stick me on a podcast and I'll talk the hind legs of a donkey. But nobody ever said that to me at school. I was just always shamed for the thing that I was actually my strongest skill. So what about the kids that are creative? What about the musical kids? What about the artistic kids? What about the, the you know, the people that are incredible at articulating something in a particular way? What about the kids that have got a really good understanding of, like I had a natural ability to grasp psychology and human behavior, whereas I was always rubbish at spreadsheets and rubbish at understanding physics and science. Like that isn't how my brain works. So where was anybody driving me to go you're good at this like you should go into this as a career I had to find my own path and it took me till I was I don't know in my late 30s before I actually did that whereas I would have gone into it years ago if somebody had actually embraced that with me and rather than 
you know, shame me for being having this particular skill that now serves to give me a career. And there are, there, I love that. there are teachers everywhere <laughs> despairing at the thought of calling <laughs> calling little Laura bossy when little Laura might be a very good leader or little Charlie yeah. never sits still when actually he's just got lots of energy and we need to channel that somewhere, you know, myself included in that. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely brilliant. I absolutely love that. I, I, I'd just love to know now, Angie, what, what would... We've asked this before to, to various people. What would be a perfect school set up then? How would you, knowing all what you know, how would you set up a school then? What would you do to make it so that everybody's got this strength and everybody's got self-worth? It's really I cool. I can't answer that question, Alan. Go on, have a go. I can't. I'm not involved in the education system enough to <laughs> hazard a guess. Like I have a, I have a belief and probably a bit of a beam of bonnet about the way that the education system has been set for centuries and it hasn't budged and we're still sat there like robots being like drilled into things that I don't benefit, doesn't benefit our lives. Personally, that's just my take. Like I've got no benefit of, of understanding that the Battle of Hastings was 1066. <laughs> when I left school, I didn't have a clue how to get a mortgage. I didn't have a clue how to get car insurance. Didn't have a clue how to even do the basics of getting house insurance for my possessions at university. There needs to be if I, okay, I'll give it a go, but I'm not involved <laughs> in the education system in this way, but there needs to be more around um, recognising some form of system that picks up on different skills. So first we need to identify what the skills are and then recognise when somebody has the skills and actually applauding the child for having those things. And there needs to be some more life skills. Maybe there is now, I don't know, I haven't been to school for bloody about 30 years almost, but now, maybe there is more classes where they teach kids how to get a mortgage and what a mortgage is and how to save money, like money management and having deeper level of communication with people where you can actually have a conflict without it being aggressive or not being shamed of your feelings where you can actually openly talk and it not being something you need to hide. And these are the life skills that gets us further in life. I don't care about 1066 Battle of Hastings. I care around the relationships that I build and managing my money and having honest, deep connections with my friends and relationships and my family and things like that. I don't know if they involve that in school these days. It certainly wasn't there when I was there. And that to me would be a huge change as well as encouraging little Johnny, who's a natural guitarist or little Bobby, who's actually really creative in his thinking and maybe the chatterbox Angie at the back of the class that won't stop talking but actually has got a bit of brains behind her not to shame her for that and say you need to get a job where you're on stage or you're doing podcasts or you're talking all the time recognizing those in a different way rather than just one box fits all and there are educators that, that share your view Angie I think it is worth saying that I think one of the things that I, I'd love your sort of take on or your sort of idea on is with with the with a school being set up in the way that you've just talked about, trying to identify these skills to develop and trying to give people the opportunity to move to deeper levels of communication, to move to being able to um, res resolve conflicts without um, without issues and being global citizens and people that can go out into the world and achieve success. But you've touched on a really important part earlier where all those children that are going through that at the moment, and there are schools and there are educators that are trying to, to create that atmosphere you've talked about, a big battle they're facing is with the parents who have been through the school system, as you've mentioned. 
what could we start to do to educate parents around this? What are the what are the sort of easy wins that we could we could take on as as school leaders and teachers that would give the parents a little bit of a a lens up to the world that's a little bit different maybe from from the education that they had when they were at school? I don't think you're just going to be able to just snap a generation out of it by if you just went to all the kids now and just said right we're going to implement this new system with these kids and all we just need to work with the parents I don't think that would be I think that's a hell of an ass that's a lot of parents and that's a lot of conditioning of the way that we think I think it would be gradual over time I mean maybe by the time it was fully in place and working beautifully it might be beyond my years on this planet I don't know so I, I don't think there's a quick fix solution to it because you can't change anybody unless they want to change. So when I work with a client, it's because they've come to me, they've invested in themselves financially, they've invested in themselves um, emotionally and, you know, like mentally to actually make that change. Whereas if I go and force myself and somebody else and try and convince them of something that I believe that they don't, I've seen those arguments happen and not necessarily with myself, but I've seen those discussions happen and it's like banging your head against a brick wall. It's very similar to... Let's just use one that you'll all be familiar with. But if you have obviously the Brexit situation, if you've ever seen a Brexiteer go head to head with a Remainer, there's no way either one of them come out of it and go, oh, yeah, like, you're right. I'm going to change my opinion. They dig the heels in further. So trying to force it upon the parents, is, I think, would probably be more detrimental. I think it would be something that has to be done over time gradually. And one of the best ways to do that is to start with the kids and encourage them to go into like give them opportunity to see the other things that are available to them when they get older and expand their awareness of what type of jobs are out there that actually play into their skills. And once parents start seeing that, then when they become parents, they're going to be more open to it with their children, even if there's still a bit of indoctrination in there. And then it will change again with the next generation and the next generation. But the children need to uh, make the difference in terms of the jobs that they go into and see it in a different way. And then that I think will have an impact on their children and so on and so on, rather than trying to change the people that are already very, you know, focused and this is the way it must be kind of thing, which is a lot of the parents potentially are already there. It's very true. I mean, I think when we look at it, education has gone down a very corporate route where we're extremely accountable for exam results at the end of their period of time. Now, that can be related to making money in business. They're accountable to the shareholders, to the profit that they're making. Now, you deal with a lot of businesses. So their end game is to make more money, correct? Yeah? They, they, so they're coming to you trying to get better in order to make more money. Now, no. oh, right. So it's not that way. No, that's that's the difference between what I do and what I love. Sorry there to cut go. you off there, but I'm very no, different good. in that sense. So, and I make that very clear when I work with the people that I work with, whether it's a, a business and I work with a number of their employees or if it's an individual and I work with one or two, or if it's just in somebody paying out the back pocket that has, they might work for somebody, but their company doesn't even know that they're working with me. Okay. There's a lot of exec coaches out there and leadership coaches that actually say, like, if you do it this way, you'll get more promotion, you'll make more money, you'll get a bigger bonus, the business, I, I hate all of that stuff. I'm not driven, that doesn't excite me in the slightest. That's the stuff that I know causes more damage. I say to people very clearly, if you want to work with me, I'm not going to sit here and say, you'll get promoted. I'm not going to sit here and say, you'll get a bigger bonus. But what I will say is that 
if you do the work in which we talk about, I'm very, very confident that you'll feel happier. You'll feel more connected to yourself. You'll have a better relationship with your wife or husband. You'll have a better relationship with your kids. You'll feel more confident at work. You'll be able to handle conflict better. You'll feel more like fulfilled in what you do. And when you show up in a different way at work, generally it's not about pushing yourself forward. It's about taking your foot off the, off the brake. And most people are holding themselves back because of limitations around what people think of me or if I do this thing, I might get sacked or I can't do this thing because people might judge me or whatever they're trying to avoid. As a result, they end up playing small. So normally as a side impact or a side effect, people do become better leaders because they're not holding themselves back in the same way and they show up as a more effective leader. However, that isn't the motive of why they sign up for me or with me, should I say. It's that's a side effect as opposed to the motive. The motive is for them to feel better in themselves, much more confident, less imposter syndrome, less self-doubt, more self-worth and just a calmer existence, like less of that firefighting I'm going to go to bed tonight and worry about the meeting tomorrow or sleepless nights and 18 hour days, like all of that stuff stops happening because they recognize that it's their values that they start living by, not the corporate pressure and image that they previously were driven by. So you've talked about earlier about pressures from, from above where it could be, where they, it could be bonuses or it could be where they've got to be held to account for targets. What if the values of that individual and the company don't align. How, how do we move forward there? And they're trapped, they've got mortgages, they've got all sorts going on. What, what, what do we do there? What would you advise there? Carry on doing what you're doing or find something else? What, what, what's the situation there? Can you give me an example of where their own values might clash with the business values? Yeah. It's a tough one, that, isn't it? I mean, how, how could they clash? It would either mean that they're not living by the values in the business yeah. or I don't know, like values are good things, right? So it would mean that either the business isn't the integral business that they're suggesting that they are. And it's just a, a front because this often businesses use, these are our values as their kind of sales pitch. But actually when you work for them, they, they don't do anything like that. Um, or it means that the, the individual isn't living by the values. So which one is it? So for me to answer that, it'd be easy to give a specific of where the values don't align. Okay, so we, in our careers, we've encountered teachers, individuals, people who've worked in schools who don't uh, behave in the way that the values of the school are put forward. So you've got your mission and vision, and they are not, uh, they're not living those in their life in their way they are at school. So it, it's the they're basically not, they're not, in, they're not going to be in that environment where they feel they're not going to be themselves, if you get what I mean. They're not able to be themselves because they're not living to the school values. They're something totally different. So how what, are, what are the school values that they're not living by? So it could be something, you could use those, those key words. They might be like, they're not, um, they're not being honest or they're not, uh, they're not, um, what's the word? They're not having. They're not committing to the extracurricular program. They don't. They don't believe in a holistic approach. They might be very educational driven for results. So it's not living by what the actual mission and vision of the school is. Hmm. And this is where I find it very important to have clarity in what values actually are, because if your values are based around performance, that's not a value. That's an outcome. That's a that's a performance based metric. Whereas 
you can live by your values and work your butt off because you've been integral, because you've been honest and because you've been all of those things and still not get the result. Or you can be an absolute asshole and get a result. Whereas actually the first one is living by your values. The second one is, is output related and values are never output related. It's about who you be, who you are and how you operate in that moment. So if they're going to work and the company says honesty and they're not living by honesty, that's, that's different from basing it on actually metrics. So even if you're, if you're living in a world where everything is metric based, that isn't a value based environment. So you can still show up in that environment, living as just being yourself. It's not about results. It's about your, how you feel about who you are. And that's the fundamental difference. So if you're going into an, an office where you have to feel that you've got to wear a game face, that's absolutely my bag of how I'd help people of not wearing the game face. And they would show up just because they're in a room full of people that won't be honest. That doesn't mean that they can't be honest. If I turn up in a room full of people taking drugs, it doesn't mean I've got to take drugs. I can be... And be, I can be the inspirational person of I'm going to be who I am, regardless of how you guys are. And that's independence, that's self-worth, because this is what I'm doing it for me, not doing it for you. That's, um, that's also incredibly brave, isn't it, to be able to be yeah. the person that does that. And how does that impact that wider idea of belonging? Because sometimes being that brave person and that lone voice that is sticking to their values doesn't necessarily mean that you fit in in the short term. How do you get through that uncomfortable period? What, what kind of things can you do to allow people to understand that this is who you are and, and to accept you and, and for you to start to feel like you belong in, in maybe a place that's quite hard for you to feel that to start with? Mm -hmm. So first of all, bravery is a value in its own right. So it's of no surprise that you just said that takes bravery. Absolutely. So if it takes bravery to be who I am, then so be it. I'd rather be who I am and show up in that way because the fact that you've even said if you have to be that person might mean that you don't fit in would mean that the, the measurement of success is based on fitting in. Whereas when you change the measurement of success being on who I actually am, that's my measurement of success. That's where your confidence comes from. It's because people are constantly not being who they are to fit in. That is causing exactly a perfect example is causing the damage to the confidence. So we've got a society of people lacking in confidence because they're not being who they really are in order to fit in. I would rather not fit in and be who I am than not be who I am just to fit in because it is such, you basically just said to yourself, I'm not good enough for who I am and I have to be somebody I'm not to get your approval. So therefore you're saying the other person's measurement system of thoughts of me is more important and who I am is bad. I have to be something else in order to get your approval because that's more important than me being who I naturally am. That in its own right and own behavior will be crucifying for people's self-worth and confidence. Cool. So it, it's powerful stuff. And I'm not saying it's easy, but yeah. it's, this is the problem. This is exactly the problem of why people have that issue. Now, if it ended up, what I've often found is that when people show up in that way, people connect with it. People make an assumption that if I go in there and I be who I am, they're all going to hate me. How do you know that if you haven't tried? Actually, you might go in there and people go, bloody hell, I love this person you're becoming. I want to be more like that. And that's exactly what happened to me. I was, I was a massive game face wearer for years and years and decades. And then after working with my coach, I was like, okay, this is who Angie is. And I, I found that I started inspiring people more. My relationships got deeper. People actually respected me more. Less people ch challenged me on crossing my boundaries and actually other people started being more open around me because I kind of set a precedence of 
it's okay to be this and people like it they 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 warm to vulnerability they warm to honesty they warm to you know transparency they warm to being calm in conflict they warm to all those things or calm in difficult conversations not necessarily conflict but just like an awkward conversation people are warm to that people are inspired by that and i love that idea of being who you are not necessarily and you've, you've used that phrase a few times game phase how often do you speak to people that are one person at work and a very different person outside work and like you say to a certain extent that that's that there's going to be an appropriateness to behaviours, of course, that need to happen at work and don't. But so often you do hear that idea of a game phase and I need to be one person at work and one person outside work. Alan and I talk a lot about a work-life balance and that idea of if you're actually being yourself, that's a very fluid sort of uh, movement between one and the other because you at work should essentially be the person that you are at home but adapted for that environment. Would that be correct? And, and what kind of things can actually start people to understand that that's allowed and that's that's good and that's something that will really improve your self-worth? Mm. I would say in my line of work, I'd say it's 99% of the, the people that I work with have a, a different version of them at work versus the, the version yeah. of them at home. Now, there are the, the key thing that I'm trying to say here is I, I have to make this very clear that you might your values don't change. So in my olden years, before I had my own journey, if you'd have asked, like, who is Angie? And you'd have asked my sports team, my best mates, my friends, my, my teachers, my workmates, um, like my family, every one of them would have given you a different version of who I was because I was showing up as a different version based on what environment I was in. I was constantly adapting. Please like me. I want to be liked. And I was just constantly performing as like an accomplished actress in all these different environments. Now I'm confident to say that whoever you ask in whatever social circle, even if they don't know each other, they give you a fairly like equal measure of who I am. Now, when you live by your values, it doesn't mean that your behaviors don't change. What it means is your values don't change. And it might mean a different behavior on top of that. For example, if I'm hanging out with my best mates, drinking a bottle of wine and we're all having a good time, my values are still, I'm still going to be honest. I'm still going to be integral. I'm still going to be brave if I need to. I'm still going to be like, I don't know, all the other values, empathic if I need to be, I need to be caring and kind. All of those things won't change. But the behavior in which I am in that environment when I'm drinking wine with my best mates might be very different than if I'm at somebody's funeral. But my values haven't changed in that situation, but how I behave in that situation, because it would feel out of integrity for me to show up in a funeral and I'm like, way and all jazz handy and having a laugh, that would be inappropriate in that environment. But it doesn't mean values have changed. Like if I'm with my friends, it's not going to be a surprise to them if I drop a few F-bombs, whatever. But I'm not going to do that if I'm with my friends and they're with their three-year-old child. And that isn't because I'm doing it for the child. It feels wrong for me to swear like that in front of a child. But if I'm with my 40-odd-year-old friends and there's no kids there, then yes, it's not offensive at all. But that wouldn't be appropriate and it would feel out of alignment for my values me to do that. And as a, as a byproduct, the, the child benefits as well. But it's because I'm in check with myself that I wouldn't do that. But my values are still the same. So it's it's doesn't mean that you be, people often say things like, well, you're trying to say I'll go to work in jeans and trainers like, no, not if that isn't the company that you've signed up for. You've chosen to be part of that company. It's when you, you, you go into a meeting and you bite your tongue because you're scared that you're going to get judged or you're going to get disapproval if you share something that's maybe a bit controversial of opinion. That's different to wanting to go to work wearing a pair of jeans and trainers. I think you've explained that incredibly well. I think the picture I'm getting here is values are holistic and they travel with you everywhere. Your values are always the same. It's the behaviours that are context specific 
and it's the behaviours that need to be appropriate for the people around you. That, that was fantastic to you. Thanks for that. Cool. What we'll do now, Angie, we'll, we'll wind it down with some of our fun questions to finish up with. <laughs> and we'll, we'll like to start with three people you'd like to go out for, a, for an evening meal with where you can have a really good chat. And we, we usually have an eclectic mist of world leaders or politicians or film stars or even family members. Who'd be your three you'd go out for a meal with and what would you talk about? Do they have to be alive? No, not at all. There can be certainly... A lot of our guests have chose Churchill and people like that were, were certainly brown bread. Cool. Uh, three people I'd love to have a meal would be Tony Robbins. Yeah. I've actually met Tony Robbins. Okay. He's massive. When I actually hugged him and it was like hugging a fridge. He's just, <laughs> he's just a huge presence with an incredible energy. But I'd love to just sit down one-to-one -one with him for like a couple of hours and like have, a, have some food. Um, second one would be Joe Dispenza. I think that guy's an absolute genius. He has, um, I've learned so much from reading his books, just, just from him, just from like his, his, um, his books alone. I haven't ever worked with him directly, obviously. I have actually attended a Tony Robbins event. And probably as a third one, I don't know if this is going to be allowed because it's, it's not really, a, he kind of is a leader in his own way, but Freddie Mercury, I'd love to hang out with Freddie. Like he, he was my childhood idol, got me into my music. I was just queen mad. And I just, He's so flamboyant and such an so eccentric, but also just really cool and incredibly talented. And because he was just such a massive part of my childhood, I'd love to hang out with Freddie for a couple of hours. But obviously, that's unlikely to happen now. I think. <laughs> the, uh, three, three cracking choices there, and uh, I think there'd, there'd be another conversation altogether about Tony Robbins. I imagine that man's an absolute enigma, isn't he? To meet in real life, incredible. I, I love him, but. You know, the, the the event I went to, he didn't have any scripts he was using, no prompts, and he talked for 12 hours a day, just fluidly. And it was it flowed like clockwork. And his energy, the way people connect with him, like he's just such a big presence, 13,000 people, you know, one person on stage, and the whole room is just grilled, and the day would fly like that. I imagine but he's meant to be about energy, right? Because you rock up at 7 in the morning because it starts really early. And you walk in, it's like a nightclub. There's like strobe lights. There's like people on stage dancing. There's like proper trance music bouncing out. People are on the seats, like whooping and stuff. You're like, it's 7 a.m. I've only got up like <laughs> half an hour ago and I've walked into this craziness. And then it just gets you in this really big high. And then you spend the day, like, and then you leave like that, totally wired and you can't sleep. And then you walk up the next day and you do it all again. It's brilliant. <laughs> Sound, sounds like a stag doing Blackpool. <laughs> um, okay. it's a little better than a stag doing Blackpool but um... <laughs> yeah and certainly things like, I bet Tony Robinson was a chatterbox at school as well tell us um, what happens what, what, what gets you up on your down days Angie if you wake up in a bit of a grump what puts a smile on your face um, I'd basically need to do for me it's doing something that I love doing so I don't generally just wake up in a grump there's normally something that's I've allowed to, so I'll, first of all, I'll be aware of what the thing is. Is it a project that I'm working on that hasn't really happened? Is it my dog's fallen ill and I'm worried about him? Is it something else, you know? So if I can fix it, then I will. If it's something beyond my control, um, I'll do something I love doing. I mean, I'm not going to, if my dog's ill, I'm not going to leave him. That's kind of like obvious. But if it's just a general off day, I'll do something I love doing. So that would be something like, roller skating I love aggressive roller skating so I'll go and knock out like a, a marathon on my skates around the the cycle track or something um 
I love playing my guitar. I love singing. Just anything that puts you in flow, anything where you're you blink and all of a sudden four hours has gone and you think it's like 10 minutes or something. And any of those things, I've got a few things that I tap into it go and see a mate, maybe go a massive dog walk, but in a different area, shoot off in my camper van, just anything that is going to set a new, like a new frame of mind, but do something that you enjoy doing. I think when you hit that really hard roadblock, I mean, I've got an advantage because I'm self-employed, but I know there's no point in me just forcing myself to sit down and do spreadsheets that would not be useful at all for how I feel. Cool. Last one then. Um... Uh, give us a, a recommendation of a, of a book to read or something that you've read recently that's uh, that's fantastic, or maybe in the podcast or something that you've watched. Sure. Um, one of my favourite books is by Jodie Spencer. That's the guy I'd like to go out for a meal with, um, called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. So um, I found it really insightful and it does get a bit spiritual. That works for me, but that won't work for everybody. But even if you, um, what he's got an incredible ability to do is talk about things in a, a biological way he proves everything biologically from like from a physical perspective um, and the thousands and thousands of tests he's done on people to reconfirm that the stuff that he's saying is real but the way that he says like the mindset up and what we do to make the mind more negative thinking and what you can do to start changing it there was just some like a lot of the stuff I was kind of yeah I've read that before kind of thing but there was some new stuff in there that I was like god this guy's an absolute genius but just the way he explains it I just find his his style of explaining things very easy to understand and, and digest. So for me, that book grabbed me. I couldn't um, couldn't put it down and blasted through it. It's on an Audible, to be honest. Not an avid reader. I find it slow and laborious, but blasted through it in a couple of days. I just couldn't stop listening to it. So that, that would be one that I always send people to as a really good book. Super. That's great. Angie, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Would you like to share with our listeners and our viewers where they can read a little bit more about you and find out about the work that you do? Sure. I mean, everything is just under my name, so I keep it simple. So my website is just www.angiemcquillan.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as my biggest kind of social media platform. So you find me there under Angie McQuillan Career and Sorry Confidence and Career Success Coach. Um, I'm on Instagram a little bit, but I'm pretty poor at keeping up with it. Um, and I'm on Facebook as well. And I just generally use the same kind of content overall. But I get most engagement. I've got my biggest following on LinkedIn. So if you want to hear me like debate with people or have conversations with people around uh ways to build the confidence linkedin is probably the place that you'll find most use from that super angie thanks and, a lot and, YouTube. and youtube as well i've got a load of videos on youtube that's um where i put all my content too so that's another place fantastic thanks a lot for joining it's been a, an absolute pleasure to chat and we uh, we wish you all the best cool thanks for having me cheers listening to Sensemakers brought to you by the Infinite Learners podcast and backed by Tsunami, the number one ego kit provider for schools worldwide. You can learn more about Tsunami by, by visiting tsunami-sport.com and if you want to hear more from the Infinite Learners you can find us on your favourite podcast platform including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, we'll see you.